Okay, so we had a very interesting week uh, around my house. I don't know about y'all's, but um, I had, I was just, I was talking to Diana. Diane, now I've remembered. I won't have to be reminded. I asked her to remind me. Um, There's an interesting thing that's going on. In this book, we've been talking about uh, how this uh, body of believers, this brand new baby body of believers, have been deceived. And the reason they have been deceived is because why? Well, someone came in and said something contrary to what Paul had taught. So there was an alternate message that was coming in. And they were, they were actually, so apparently the deceiver was actually trying to deceive, okay. But it was a lie. Yes. What else was going on in their lives that caused them to believe the lie when it came? So circumstances, right? The circumstances in their, in their lives, the events that were going on for them around them, the things that they were seeing and experiencing caused their minds to be vulnerable because they took their eyes off of whom? Off of God and his word. So when my warning this morning to all of us is this, there are a lot of people out in our world who would like to deceive. I've got to tell you, some of them don't even think they are trying to deceive you. They really are convinced that they're right. They have a message. They have a belief system. Whatever the system is, boy, there's bunches of them. We've been talking about all kinds of things here lately, different kinds of systems of, of that, what, what, and they truly are heresies because at, at, a, at some level, there is truth in them, right? They believe on Jesus. Um, they understand salvation. They understand um, <laughs> eternal, eternal glory to come. So there's a lot of commonality in the things that they will share with you. But then what they do is then they bring alongside of that an, an error in thinking, which is fundamental. And so in a conversation I had yesterday with someone, this came out of my mouth and I went, where did that come from? It was just such a God thing. I, not that, you know, I feel like I'm a vessel of any kind, but the Lord just really made it clear to me that I think I'm, I'm actually have just stumbled into a real clarity here. Sometimes... Um, we as even as strong believers can be deceived by a, a person who stands up at a podium or is a speaker or who's on the news or the radio or whatever. But because they seem to be coming from a position or a place of authority um, and their message has got enough good stuff in it that we can get sucked into it because we don't, we don't really understand the, pr- the basic principles about where they're coming from, right? If you understood their foundation was different than ours, then you would identify that all these other things that come in, maybe three-fourths of them are good, but the one-fourth is not, and it's just enough to alter your, your bigger perspective in the end and to alter the, the outcome in the end. Because if you alter one of the basic principles, then the truth itself is, is, becomes a different. It's like adding a drop of, of uh, coloring into a, another color, and you change the color completely, right? Um, we had... A situation where she she was talking. This person was talking with me, and she said, "Well, they do talk." I said, "Just have to make sure that it's based in scripture." Oh well, this person uses scripture, 
And I said, oh, oh, but is it doctrinally sound scripture? Do they have the, full, the foundation of it all? I, so all of a sudden it hit me. You know, there is, a, there is a distinction there. There can be a person who can spout a lot of scriptures. They just pull them and yank them from all over the script, all over the Bible, and they pull them in and make them fit their narrative, right? Satan did that all the time. That's exactly right. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, it's exactly what, what God said. And how about in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say, right? So here's some, a point that just hit me is there is a contrast to, contrasting thing in my mind. That is, yes, you can have a viewpoint about a subject or you can have a theology, basically, that you can support through scripture because you can yank scriptures all over the place and just lay them on top of it. But you got to contrast that with the whole counsel of God's word, the doctrine about a subject. So when you go in to listen to a speaker or you go in to Google on the, on the computer and, and bounce around and listen to different people, I would really recommend that as students of God's word that you get into the habit of when you're going to listen to someone, first you need to research that person. And in order to keep that in balance, you need to not only see what do they say about themselves, what do their, what does their cheerleaders say about them, but then flip it over and go to the other side and see what do the, those who are, who are opposing them saying about them so that you can hear both sides of the story and then you can say, that's a valid point, or no, that's really, that's nitpicky, or that just doesn't matter. It's, it's not that significant. But it does make a difference. If, if when you research, you look at the doctrinal base for a person's uh, message or a person's, if they've got a, each ministry seems to have kind of their own little theme, like it's about grace or it's about the end times or it's about, um, what did we just come out of Acts? Uh, maybe it's the sign gifts or whatever. So maybe you've got a, a ministry that's really propagating a specific subject, right? What you have to do is find out then what is their foundation to their all their belief system? What is all that based on? Because when you're listening to that person, then I can guarantee you their doctrinal foundation is going to filter into everything they say. And they often will say things that sound right to you, but what they really mean is something quite contrary. And if you understood where they were coming from, instead of applauding and putting your money in their, in their offering plate, you would be getting up and walking out. Okay? So it's one of those things that just kind of dawned on me. I went, wow, that's interesting. Because often we get tricked because we talk, talk, like in this conversation with her, she was saying, oh, but this person does use scripture. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I said, Yeah but their doctrine's wrong. So yeah, they're just pulling scriptures out to support what they wanted to say. They're not, the foundation is wrong. Their belief system is based on what's wrong. And it, and it messes with God's plan of salvation of grace and all the principles of what occurs when you come into that grace, right? So I just wanted to bring that up this morning because even among these Thessalonians, they too had a a situation where they were in circumstances which took their eyes off of what Paul had taught them. Paul had come in and given them the full gospel, and apparently he had taught on the end times. He had taught on persecutions. He had taught on 
and and exa- and lived a, by example about you know l- working hard for your own money and not being you know lazy or imposing upon others. I mean, he had taught a lot of things in that short amount of time that he was with them, um, and yet when he left, then they got sucked in by someone else. N- number one, maybe coming, they were able to present themselves as being Paul, right? They thought, these Thessalonians thought maybe it was a letter as if it was from Paul, is what it says, right? So they said enough good things correctly that they got, they believed it was from Paul. But then there was one major thing that was off, and it had to do with the day of the Lord. And they had been convinced that, that they were going to enter into the day of the Lord. Now that is a doctrinal error, right? So... Paul has to write back to this church now and correct that. And what, that's exactly what we did last week is we looked at the, the difference between the day of the Lord and his coming for us. Did we not in the conclusion see that these are two different events, yeah. right? And if you, as you continue to do your work on end time activities and the things that are uh, found in books like Daniel and Um, even Joel, like we did last week, but um, Revelation in particular, um, Ezekiel, which we just came out of, you're going to see a description of those two time frames as being very different times, right? Which really allows you to draw a line in the sand and say, this is one day, this is another day. And so that's what Paul wrote back. And in chapter two, he clarifies the day of Christ coming for you is not the same as the day of the Lord and the man of lawlessness. Okay? Would you say that doctrinally that's a foundation now that you've got a point that you can't deviate for or shouldn't be deviating from? And somebody who comes to you and pulls a verse out of here and pulls a verse out of there should not be able to sway you as long as you do what? Remember what you were taught, right? Because we didn't teach it in a way in this class that it's just me or even precept themselves through their curriculum just saying this is this is what you need to believe. What they did is they took you everywhere and you looked at all these various scriptures and you did your own charts and categorized things. Like I said, you took that garage, you threw it all out in the driveway and then you started grouping things together that matched. And when you were done, you could see where things were supposed to go. And then when you put it on a timeline, you go, okay, this goes here, this goes here, and this goes here. And you know exactly where now it goes. You were taught, you weren't told, right? The Holy Spirit taught you, the the Word of God taught you, and then we, as iron sharpens iron, taught. So this is stuff that you should be able to bank yourself on now and have your feet really solid, and you should not be uh, deceived or, or shaken or or um, confused in any way. There should be no shaking in your life concerning the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ for his bride. Isn't that awesome? Doctrine matters. So it's a, it's a little point, but I thought it was a real profound point that I had just never really considered because I can see how people can say, oh, but they, they give lots of scriptures. Yeah, but they're pulling them out of context. To make it fit their narrative, right? I wanted to add on that because it's funny. I just happened chanced on this Yahoo thing or YouTube today about a woman doing the same thing, but she was talking about medicine, the same thing. 
like in all these medical companies, will say this drug is good for you, and they'll pay people to do a lot of editorials and say, you know, testimonies, and they they and they pay so much that by the time you might get to a true uh, review, it could be on the third page of Google or something. That was just medicine, but she was Christian. And so I'm thinking the same thing, because I like to Google things and look up what the bases is and stuff. And I'm, right. I'm just realizing that they, she even talked about Wikipedia, which I do know is supposed to be people's opinions and stuff, but she even talked about a person, an author, who kept trying to correct something that was being quoted from him, and he said, that wasn't me, and they wouldn't let him. So he said a lot of these sites really rule, and I'm thinking because of the last days and Satan trying to really mess with our minds. Here I go, I do a lot of research. But I thought, gosh, it's even warning me to be even more thorough. Right, right. That's right. Oh, my gosh. Satan's going to use this tool to... Yes, he will. He will. This is why... This is why I do love precept because it trains you to do uh, really good research and to think critically and not just get sucked in immediately. You start to use your discernment and say, no, wait a minute, let me think about this. Let me process this. I'm not just going to jump on the bandwagon. And I'm not going to go to an event or a conference or or watch something on YouTube that's going to get me all pumped up and all excited. And I'm just going to go like crazy and put it on Facebook and tell all my friends and get them on board and then find out two weeks into it, big mistake I made, right? Don't be embarrassed. I can't tell you how many times I had learned that lesson on my Facebook page about things that got forwarded, you know, and I would just post them. And then eventually I'd had to go back and take it off and say, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't true. It's been, you know, snooped or whatever you call it, right? Yes. Sometimes that's exactly right. So that's exactly right. Okay. So here's what you have to do. When it comes to scripture, you need to not just know the scripture verses, you need to know the doctrine. That's what you're in this kind of a study for. You're here to learn the full foundation, which means the whole counsel of God's word, which is why, for instance, here we are looking at prayer today as it's a subject. It gets brought up here in this one point. You could pull a verse out of here or any verse and you can say, well, see, all you have to do is ask and God will give you it, give it to you. Name it and claim it, right? But that is that the whole counsel of God's word? Is that what God says? No. So, and we obviously did not do a full study on the subject of prayer. Prayer itself could be a 12-week or better kind of a study if we ever uh, had the ability. To, I don't think Precept has one out. They have a 28-day prayer thing, but not an inductive study on it. But I would love to see them do one, you know, so that you could get the full understanding of what, you know, what is prayer? What is its purposes? And that's kind of what we looked at today, just in a small way. But the learning these doctrines takes time. You have to lay a little bit on a little bit as you move through your studies. Every time you move into a new book, maybe that subject will come up again. You get a little bit more from another slightly different perspective. And in time, you build doctrines rather than just verses. And that's the difference. And I'm telling you, that's what's going to save us. And the other thing is, check out your resources. If you're listening to things out there in the world, even if it's somebody that you feel like you can really trust, you need to find out what is their, the doctrinal statement of that particular ministry. So I love, that's one of the things I love about Precept is they, at least they used to, I'm not, I haven't looked in a long time, but they always had a doctrinal statement page that comes in every one of their curriculum books. 
And if not, it's online. So you can go online and you can say, this is what Precept Ministry believes. This is their doctrine about who is God, who is man, what is sin, what is salvation, what about eternal life, what about the kingdom to come? You know, how, how do they believe on those things? And then you can then determine, do I agree with yes, 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 yes. Well, this one I'm not sure. This slightly I'm off on that. But on the whole, it's good. Then you know you're good, right? But because we all are growing and changing, there are cer- certain little tweakies. But if it's a major point, right? One of uh, the subjects that she and I had a conversation about then initially was about the Gnostic teaching that this particular ministry was bringing into this is the foundation upon which they are built it has a lot of gnosticism i said first john is your book first john the entire book is written to refute gnosticism and there are five chapters and in each chapter they they address a different point a different quality that if you look around the world there's some kind of a false religion out there that addresses one of those five and so if you come to understand what First John teaches you so that you understand how to recognize Gnosticism, then First then John is your book to anchor you. Again, back to doctrine so that then you are able to, you know, assess or discern what's going on with these people that you're listening to. Valuable lessons in, in this particular lesson last week that we did. Um, let's start now. Are there any other insights or points that somebody want to talk about that because it really is a good one. Cindy. Yeah, right, right. Does that work? You know, because it was, and so we started exchanging. Um, well, you went to the yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> from the, ridiculous, yeah, you know, but in order to make the point, right. Bible verses and what he was basing it on, and I think those that came in here, it would say a little retrieve it, but I said, you are like rat poison. I said, 98% of rat poison is actually from just a quick rat. It's just the two people get yeah. And you are just spewing rat poison off in this congregation. Right. Good for you, Cindy. You you got him, huh? Yeah. I hope you, I hope Yeah. Well, you know, this you, you know, this is this is it and and another conversation for another day is at what point do you part ways when you find yourself underneath the teaching or preaching of someone that you disagree on? It has to be you have to really weigh that and that is a tough one. Um we will discuss another day, okay, because <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> Let's go back, and just for the sake of reviewing a little bit about our context, because we haven't, we haven't done that in a couple of weeks, I want to redo our context. The, for, um, we know who the author is, right? Who? Paul. And he's writing to whom? The Thessalonians. Do we know where in history this is, has occurred, that, he, that this book is being written? Around 58, is that 50 AD? Okay, I think it was a little bit later than that, but that's probably close. Yeah, right, okay. And my, my question isn't so much a date as it is where in the development of the church are we? 
Baby, baby, baby. This is shortly after Pentecost. We've, he's, he's, it's Paul's second missionary journey. He goes to Thessalonica. These people receive the gospel. We know of the harassment, right? That this was a, a, a really uh, aggressively angry mob of people of the, uh, among the unbelievers, correct? So we know the environment in which these believers are basically trying to grow and develop in. It's very hostile. Okay, so at this point, what I kind of like to do then is just focus on what exactly was the the purpose for this writing. What was the author's purpose for writing? Okay, so to clarify, in other words, to what? To instruct or to correct? Instruct, instruct, then to instruct, and then to correct, okay? And the instruction was about things like the day of the Lord, you said. I'm going to put it on here, day of the Lord, and to correct them about the coming coming of Christ. For... Us, the church, right? All right. So, the, so basically, he, that is exactly what he had to do. He had to, he had to clarify to them because he had talked about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. Apparently, both subjects had come up in his early teaching with them, but somehow they had blended them together. And because of the, the issues that were going on, these, this persecution, they had gotten um, their eyes off of and their minds off of what they had been told was true, what was the gospel truth. Those doctrines which had been taught to them, they, were, they kind of put them by the wayside. They looked at all the experiential things around them. Someone came in who deceived them, started talking as if it was Paul, and tried to convince them otherwise, and they bit off on it. Instead of holding fast to that which they had been taught, they believed the lie, right? Uh, and it caused them to do what? Be shaken and disturbed, right? All right. So they, he, he writes to instruct about the day of the Lord. There's another thing he writes to instruct about. What was it in chapter 1 that we looked at? What was the major subject in chapter 1? Afflictions and suffering. And so what did he instruct them about concerning afflictions and, and suffering? Okay. <laughs> yeah, those who afflict you will be dealt with, right? So there's a, would you call that a word of exhortation? I would. Yeah. I would too. Thank you. Okay. And to exhort. So you kind of see it melt together in some places. I mean, he, ba- he goes back and forth p- periodically throughout every one of these chapters where in one moment he's instructing, the next moment he's correcting, the next moment he's, he's um, it, through prayer giving them exhortation, right? So he corrects them about the day of the Lord, and then he instructs them then about afflictions, right? And what does he tell them about afflictions that, that was an instruction for them to remember that it's a doctrine, hold fast to it? There you go. That your afflictions make you worthy of the kingdom of God. What had the lie probably been? Well, what do we know that they, that they assumed was true? 
they were in the day of the Lord. They had missed that rapture, that being taken out. And so somehow they thought, well, we're in the midst of afflictions. And so it must be that God forgot me or forgot us. And he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. He's not going to rescue us from that day, as was taught in First Thessalonians. But instead, now here we are in the midst of it. They had forgotten what they had been taught. So he's writing back to let them know about afflictions and to inform them... Um, uh, basically give them understanding about afflictions, about what is their purpose and what is their value. Afflictions, their purpose and value. Right? Right? Yes, exactly. So in... In chapter 1, I'll just give you 1.5 as your point of reference about those afflictions. Um, And then for the other one, for the day of the Lord, in chapter 2, it's going to be verses 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, although we're not there yet, we can see that there's going to be some instruction going on there. We'll add it in at the end here, okay? But there are some things that he's instructing them about or correcting them on even, right? Now, to correct, what do we see about corrections? Kind of the same thing, right? The, the purpose and value to enduring an affliction. So the, the, he instructs them about that. Apparently not. Or maybe, I wonder if James was written before or after. Did we ever determine that? Oh, it, James probably had to be written first, right? We did, had thought James was really early. So, yeah, they hadn't read James maybe. Or they again had <laughs> forgot what they had been instructed on in James, Right. I've been there personally, and you, there's a point at which you get sucked into a theology, and then you look at its effect on the folks around it, mm-hmm. and the effect on your own life, mm-hmm. and you kind of back up and you look at the word. Sometimes it's just little tiny things to it. All it takes is one tiny point being off. And then if, if what they say and they're trying to convince you of is true, it blows everything else out of the water in what you had as your foundation. You have to say, well, if, if what you're telling me is true, then this isn't true and this isn't true and this isn't true and this isn't true. How do you, how you, how do you reconcile all the things that you are now destroying in doctrine in order for me to believe this one point that you're trying to make? And would you say that in God's word, there's ever a situation where a doctrinal truth will violate anything else in God's word? No. God's word has this perfect balance. And and every doctrine or pillar, whatever they are, if it's a truth that God says is true, it will not, it will not um, hinder or, or disturb or debunk any of the other points. Instead, it will actually enhance them and strengthen them. It will help clarify them. Okay? All right, so he's instructing them about the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ. He's talking to them. He's instructing them about the purpose and value for afflictions. And so then he's correcting them. Why is he correcting them? What is, he, what is his agenda? So they will hold fast. Mm 
Okay. So that they will hold fast and not be shaken or disturbed. What is, his, what is another reason he is correcting them for? Okay. He wants to exhort them. Yeah. And that would fall under the, once they're corrected, then it moves into exhortation. And that is that it would have an effect then, right? In their life. On their daily living. On their persevering, correct? All right. So that kind of gives us a little bit of a, of a context for what we're going to be looking at here in the rest of our homework. Author's purpose is to instruct, it's to correct, and to exhort so that it will have an effect on them. And so that ultimately it will give them a foundation in truth. Right? He's taking them back to reteach them truth, correct? So he's correct. In that, in that correction, the result is to exhort them in that foundation so that they keep setting their eyes back on what they have been taught, not what was they were experiencing, and not what other people were bringing into them. Sure, absolutely. Sure. And you know, this is, oh my gosh, I can do, if you think of all the things that we can have as kind of equal scenarios, this, it can be loss of a house. I think about Linda Keir. Now she's laying in a bed in a coma. Her whole family, their, their world is just on hold, right? Uh, The loss of, potentially the loss of a child. I've been there, done that. That is devastating. I went six months into a deep, dark hole. And I shook my fist at God and said, I'm never speaking to you again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, and God brought me out. And God brought me through. And then God really established me through that hard time. So the hard times can do two things for people. Can cause them to run from God or it can cause them to draw closer to God. Or it can start out running from God and end up drawing closer to God. It, it's a work. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mhm. Mhm. So afflictions, although they're hard on us emotionally and and in almost every other way, what is their value though? Does he teach that there's a value in it? Yeah, when we looked at cross references it talked about perfecting us and confirming us and establishing that we would be lacking in nothing, right? Um, well, the other thing you said is he is always with you. Yes. So when you're in good times versus when you're in bad times, when do you think that people press in the hardest to God? In the bad times. So it's not that God wants you to have bad times, but since you're in a bad time, it's effectual, <laughs> Right? It's effectual to press you in back into the Lord. And so although it's hard when you're going through it, in the end you can look back on it. And I can, in my life, I look back, the times I felt the closest to the Lord were the times when I was totally in, in despair because I was constantly in prayer with the Lord. And at the end of it, when one day the light 
shone through and I saw that light at the end of the tunnel and I started to feel the lifting of that oppressive time in in my life, then I could look back on that and I actually find delight in it in some way, in strange way. Hurt at the darkness, but delight in what God was doing in me and with me and through me in that time. All right. So let's go back then and look at our, um, well, very quickly, let's go back and get the flow of thought here where we're at. What was chapter one's major theme? To persevere in suffering, right? He has the opposite side. He says the negative to that is therefore, and don't be what? Don't be shaken or deceived, right? So do not be shaken and deceived, but persevere in suffering, correct? So you can actually title this book either on the positive or you can title this book on the negative. And what I found last night when I went back and looked at my notes, I went, oh, I did one of them in positive and one of them in negative, and then I went back to positive again. I need to fix this. So you can do one of two things. You can either give yourselves two titles for each chapter that says, don't do this, but do this, and progressively follow that through in all three chapters. Or you can give all three your positive points, or you can give all three your negative points if you want consistency. And you know, one of those, it's one of those things that later you look back on it and all of a sudden you realize that's what you've done. That's what happens. So do not be shaken, but persevere in suffering, okay? And in chapter 2, what was the major theme? Let no one deceive you, but what's the positive? What are you to do instead of being deceived? Remember what you were taught or hold fast to those traditions which you were taught. One of those statements. So let no one deceive you, but hold to the, the traditions you were taught. Okay? And now we're going to do the same thing for this week after we go through these observations. Let's start with um, looking at just some basic work here. Let's do our keywords for chapter 3. Okay, what kind of keywords did you find in chapter three? Huh? I'm oh, sorry, say it again. Command. command, yes, the command. Say it with more authority, Susan. <laughs> now, is there a synonym to the word command in here? Obey instruction. Okay. And there's also, you could say, the, the word commands, meaning commandments, right? And in that case, it would be what? Things that you were taught, the gospel, right? That which you heard from me. How does he say it in here? Command, I co- now, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he gives them instruction, right? So it's, it's the instruction there. Um, let me see if I've got it marked. Um, Obey our instruction in this letter. And you said tradition, is that, which verse was that one? Okay. Okay, got it. So there's two possibilities for how you're going to interpret that word command. It's either command or commands, as in commandments that we're taught. You'll have to discern by by the context of the verse. All right, what else? 
undisciplined. Now, let's take that and broaden that into a people group because we really have two people groups in this particular passage, don't we? Okay, so we have uh, undisciplined what? Brethren. The undisciplined brethren. And then there's a contrast, and that's who? All the rest of them, the you, and they are those who are doing what in verse 4? You who are doing what? Yeah, continuing in what we taught them, right? You who are continuing... In what we taught. So that's actually a contrast statement. I was going to take us through the contrast, but how many of you did your contrast for your observations at the time? Did you, what did you conclude at the end of them? What were they almost all contrasting about? That, that's it. It really came down to these two people groups, the undisciplined and the ones who were, being, who were disciplined. They weren't titled in that way, but it was those who were continuing in what was taught and those who were not. And actually, at the, at the conclusion of it, he talks about how those who were not, he said, and if they're not, if they're not obeying, right, then there was a way that they were to handle them, right? Yeah. Correct. So basically, there's two people groups, the undisciplined or the unruly, and then the, the ones who are continuing what was taught to them. In what we taught and in our instruction, there, there was two responses, those who were undisciplined and those who were continuing in it. Pretty cool when you just look at your contrast even, huh? How, how very clear it makes it to us what it is that is the major subject in this particular record. Okay, so this is, oops, I got this in the wrong, wrong verse. I'm so sorry. Let's put this. This is verse 6 and 11 for the ones that are continuing. And the undisciplined brothers, I pulled out of verse 4, but there were lots of verses you could pull out of that, right? Let's talk about, um, well, let's get some more keywords. We almost didn't finish that. Let's do that. What else do we see for keywords? Some of them were words that were mentioned one time, but they were profound, right? And they were a very definitive or a very decisive uh, instruction that Paul uh, impresses to them, correct? So what were some words that, and you may have even done word studies on them. Admonish. Admonish. That's a good one. If you remove it from the text, does it leave the text devoid of anything significant or important? And the answer would be certainly. Because in this case, he identifies a group and tells them how to handle them. And he uses the word admonish. And you have to understand what it means to admonish in order to fulfill that, right? Did anybody do word studies on that? Did you, did you look up what it meant to admonish? No? Okay, let me give it to you guys. 
can't believe she asked you guys to do some word studies, but uh, pardon? On day four, she said to you guys to do, but she didn't. She didn't name any word, any specific ones. She just said, "Go through now and look for words that you think that you need to look up." So she left it up to your discretionary choices. And it doesn't sound like many of you did a lot of. I did five pages of word studies. I tried to cover every word I thought you guys might hit. And now I find out you did none. All that work for what? (laughs) I learned a lot. (laughs) Okay. Let's look look at that word admonish so that we understand. Because since it's the instruction that's used in this record for how they are to handle. We are going to go into this much more next week. So I'm not going to go into it deeply today. Uh Do you do a word study on it next week? Oh, well, then we'll save it. We'll save it for next week. See, sometimes I get ahead of her. (laughs) I do that a lot. But sometimes I get into next week's homework, and a lot of it's done. That's nice, too. (laughs) Okay, because I know we're going to... This week, our primary focus is once we get all of our basic principles down about the observations that we made in Chapter 3, then we're going to focus in on our major subject today, which is prayer. Okay? And next week, we're going to come back to this and conclude by looking at the unruly brothers and how to handle them. So again, it'll be the subject of church discipline, correct? And did we not see that in the book of Acts where we saw church discipline had to be basically taught and addressed even right away in the early church where there was issues that came up and there was discipline? Poor Ananias and Sapphira. They learned the hard way, did they not? Okay, so... Okay, so admonish. What else? What would be another word that you might find important? Don't associate or keep away from. Do not associate. And, and one that's also keep away from. Okay. The word associate. So you might need to know what that means uh, in, in order to fully and appropriately execute this instruction to us on how to handle an unruly brother it would be beneficial to know what that word admonish means and what it means to n- not associate with them. How, what does that exactly mean? And, then of course, we, we will more fully develop that next week. All right? Right. Right, and so what verse was that not obeying one? 14, okay, so in 4 and 14 is the other side. So in verse 4 are the undisciplined brothers, and verse 14 are those not obeying our instruction. But it also sounds to me like, would you not say, just from what we've looked at with not a lot of detail, but would you say that the undisciplined brothers are not obeying the instruction? Because what did Paul do right following that? What does he say he did before them? He was an example. Did you mark example as a key word? That was another word that should have been looked at and made the list on at least. What was Paul's example to them, right? And the word model, that's right. Good. Yeah. There of word studies. Oh, good. I bet I've got mine all done. 
Is it? Oh, well, I'm probably going to be glad I did that then, huh? All right. Well, I just know that on day four, she said pick out words that you feel that you need to look at more thoroughly by doing a word study. I know this, that, you know, in the process of doing inductive work, sometimes you, um, you have to execute a step in order to find out whether it's valuable to you or not. Sometimes you do one of the steps, like a keyword study, for instance, and you get done with the study, that word study, and you go, well, yeah, it really means exactly what it says it means, right? It's very obvious. It's, I didn't learn a whole lot. But other times, it takes you to really clarify something or connect something. There was one word that I connected um, that I thought was very interesting, and that was the word steadfastness. Did any of you pick up on that as a keyword? Okay, good. I hope I was hoping you did. The word steadfastness. The steadfastness of Christ. I think it's like four, five. Okay, verse five. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Well, very interesting because what does that kind of link back to previous to it? Well, yeah, you're, it's, that's what you're being steadfast in. But is there another similar word, although there are two different words, but is there something similar stated prior to that? Um, well, okay, let, let me say it this way. Did you see any kind of a pattern here of, of teaching that Paul gave that where he talks about, I want you to be steadfast, right? Did he leave it there? Is that all he says? Just be steadfast? No, he said that they had confidence in the Lord that they would continue to do what they were commanded. Right. Right. Okay. So that's you be steadfast, Carrie. You be steadfast. What else did he do then to emphasize that instruction? Thank you, Janice. He did it himself. He was the example of steadfastness. He follows it on with that. Now I'm going to get your brain really tickled here. Step up, go back about the first three verses in there. Is there another example that's stated? Huh? Yes, thank you. Good, good job, Lise. That's exactly it. But the Lord is faithful, right? Then he says to them, you be steadfast. And then he says, follow my example. Did you catch that pattern? Did anybody else catch that little pattern in there of, of the, the progressiveness of how he is emphasizing to them this subject of steadfastness? What was really cool was um, if you go back to chapter 2 and the close of it, he talks about a little prayer, of course, again, which we're going to get into in a minute. But he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, uh, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Well, guess what? I also had done a word study on that. And guess what, by definition, that's talking about? What is that synonym to? steadfastness see sometimes you connect thoughts 
by doing word studies that you would have never picked up on before if you hadn't done the word study. I never would have gone back to strengthen your heart and thought of that as being steadfastness. Although, if you ponder it for a second, you go, of course, if you strengthen, you're going to be stronger and you're going to be steadfast. But by simply doing the word study, by definition, it, the word means uh, the word strengthen there in chapter 2, verse 17 is uh, 47:41, and it means establish, fix, make firm, or steadfastly set. And when I picked up on that, I went, oh, well, that's interesting. He's just prayed for them to have steadfastness. Then he says, Jesus is faithful. He says, you need to continue in steadfast, the steadfastness of Christ, who is your faithful example, and then follow our example of steadfastness. Right? Isn't that an exciting thing? So let's put that up here because I just thought it was really cool. There's a flow of thought here on the subject of steadfastness. I got to get that word. Hold on. There we go. Okay. Steadfastness, number one. Jesus is faithful. You continue. And then follow my example. And this is all related back to the subject of steadfastness. Now, I don't know if this will be in our homework next week or not. I don't think so. Um, but it, it caught my attention when I only because I did my word studies and I wouldn't have picked up on it otherwise. And I thought that's very, very interesting the way he did that. And he preceded it in the chapter before in chapter two with a prayer that they be steadfast or that they be strengthened. Did you like that dyslexic thing I just did? <laughs> I added the <laughs> That's the way my brain goes. I can't help it. It's just amazing. All right. <laughs> it's amazing I get my homework done, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so let's do real quickly a look at some of Paul's instruction then to, to the Lord. He says the Lord is faithful. Did anybody do a word study on faithful? That the Lord is faithful. You know, because Jesus is our most important example. Would you not agree with that? Even though Paul says, follow my example, what, what I thought was interesting is when I figured it out that there was an actually a, a flow of thought here where he starts with Jesus being faithful. He doesn't just say, I want you to be faithful, now follow me. He started by saying, first of all, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is steadfast. Right? Is there, are there any verses that kind of come to your mind about the steadfastness or the faithfulness of God, Christ? That's a good one in Hebrews, yes. That he is our faithful high priest. 
There you go. There's another great verse that Jesus himself is faithful and he won't allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can endure. Would you say that would be beneficial for these, these believers and for us who are in these circumstances to remember that, that when you're in the midst of, of uh, afflictions and sufferings and persecutions, to know that he's not going to af- allow you to be afflicted longer than or more than you can bear. And in the midst of that, he is also giving you and providing for you a way of escape or ways of escape, right? One and the most important one is our subject this morning, which is what? Through prayer. And when you enter into the sanctuary of God, according to the Psalms, uh, uh, was it Psalms, um, gosh, now the 81, 80, where he says, and then I entered into the sanctuary of God. First, he, he is... Uh, feeling envious of the wicked until he goes into the sanctuary of God. And then what? He sees their demise. They're in that they are basically on a slippery slope to hell. And he says, and then I felt like a brute beast before the Lord. Instead of hating them and being angry about them, he now his eyes are turned around. He's got his eyes fixed on Jesus. He understands the end and that it's coming even for his enemy. And so now his whole perspective changes on his, his, in this case, it was about his, his envy. But for, uh, for those of us who are in times of, of suffering and persecution, if we keep our eyes on the end and we understand that according to what Paul has instructed them, that there's a, in afflictions there is purpose and value, what was one of the values that we learned about our afflictions last week? What's going to happen for those of us who endure in them successfully in a way that honors God? What? We're, number one, we'll, we are proving ourselves to be worthy. In other words, it's the external sign that you have the Holy Spirit and that you are destined for eternal life. When people look at you and see you enduring in difficult times and yet you're every Sunday morning picking up your things and going off to church and you're still involved in your church activities and you're still praising the Lord in the midst of them, it is the plain indication. It's a clear, uh, decisive evidence that in fact you do are and are worthy of the kingdom of God. So it's not saying it's how you get there. It's not what makes you worthy. It shows that you are worthy, right? Um, what else? Anything else that it does for you? What's going to happen when you come to that day of the Lord? Where do we go? What happens when we come before the be a seed of Christ. Yeah. So remember last week we looked at this. We talked about in First Corinthians 3 that our works go before the ref- or through the refining fire, right? And at the other end, what comes out? If it, if it remains and it does not get burned up, what? Reward. There's reward. And in Thessalonians, it says to us about, um, hold on. In chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in, in his saints on that day, right? Um, he talks about the fact that he is going to be glorified in us and us in him, right? In verse 12, so that the name of the Lord will be glorified in you. So the value of your afflictions and persecutions that you endure successfully is that it brings God glory. And it's, he says that the name of Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. So there's going to be reward and there's going to be glory for Jesus because of your having held fast. 
All right. So the Lord is faithful. Let's look at that word definition. Just for fun. Uh, faithful. It's a pretty obvious one. It's 4103. Uh, Pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. It means trustworthy or pertaining to being reliable, pertaining to being trusted, faithful, trustworthy, dependable, and reliable. And then when you follow down then to do the, the word on steadfastness, they become almost synonyms. Even though they are two different words, they're very, cl- they're very uh, close. Um, talks about uh, patient endurance, patiently waiting, steadfastness, constancy, endurance, purpose, and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. He has not swerved from his deliberate uh, steadfastness. So steadfastness of Christ um, is the result of being faithful. You're faithful and therefore you are steadfast. Or you're steadfast because you are faithful. They're they're like joined at the hip in one another, right? All right. So the Lord is faithful. Let's put this on here. I, you know what? Let's do that, this instead. Let's do, very quickly, an outline for chapter 3. I want you to see the flow of thought for the, the totality of chapter 3. I'll put it over here on this board. Chapter 3 outline. Right? Last week, I showed you the value of that in the book of Joel, right? We went in and we did Joel chapter 2 and 3. And by simply doing an outline rather than trying to find, make all those lists on the day of the Lord, it simplified it. I think the same thing is true in this chapter. For us to get a good uh, start on where we want to begin in order to move into looking at subjects like prayer, the first thing you want to do, though, is see what is, your, what is the fullness of this uh, particular chapter about in relationship to the whole, what is our book theme? Let's start there. Okay, stand firm and hold to traditions taught. That's a long one, isn't it? They aren't usually that long. And and, and at some point, you can just give it that stand firm title, and you'll remember what it's talking about, standing firm in the traditions that are taught. So let's outline chapter 3. I did 1 to 3 as my first paragraph. So tell me what you see in 1 to 3. Yeah, there is that subject comes up in the midst of it. Is it the primary subject, do you think? Oh. Okay. So you have the gospel. You have finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will be spread rap- rapidly just as it did with you. And so that's the first subject, right? Then the second subject is that we will be rescued, right, from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but... The Lord is faithful, and he will do what? Strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So um, this one is a little tougher. It is almost one of those chapters where you have to do the full chapter 
through once or twice in order to see what the major emphasis is in here. Would you say in chapter, in chapter 3 on the whole, what would you say is the major subject? We know there's two people groups, correct? The unruly, undisciplined, and th- those who don't obey, those who are, who are not following what was taught, and those who are continuing in it, right? So those are, the, those are the two people groups. And what is the word of exhortation to them in it? Follow his example. So if you know following his example, and his example is one of what? Being steadfast. Right? So if you know that, that what he's trying to do then is he's showing all these obstacles in life, right? Throughout here. And he kind of splatters back and forth. There's two or three things that are being uh, talked about in this particular chapter. But what you see on the whole is it really boils down to being this word of exhortation, right? And he's trying to exhort them in the midst of all these various kinds of problems that, that they encounter. We all, do, we all encounter a little bit of all of these all the time in our lives, at various times. And so his, what he's doing, what he feels his job is as a pastor and a father over this church is to help them by exhorting them to stand in the steadfastness of what they've been taught, right? So he says, stand firm, one to three, because who is Jesus? He is faithful. So you could say the Lord is faithful as your first one, which is what I did. But if there's something else that you could see in there that would help you focus on the subject of being steadfast. Um, there really isn't any other place to go in those first three verses, I don't think, except to say that the Lord is faithful in order to stay with the idea that what he's teaching them is the exam, by his own example, he wants them to follow in this same pattern, right? Yes, it is. It's a subject that comes up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, but he says prayer over and over. And that's one of the things we're going to look at here in a second. Prayer is a subject which is actually in all of the chapters. And he says it in a variety of ways, but it isn't the major subject. He's, he, he's not, his, his emphasis here is not to pray or what prayer is about or, or how to pray even, but rather he says, this is what I'm praying for you concerning this circumstance. So it's like prayer is the ointment for the problem, right? But it isn't the problem. And what he's doing here is he's teaching them, he's instructing them, he's correcting them, and then he's exhorting them. That's why I titled my last, par- my last uh, column here, How Does He Exhort Them in this particular book? He exhorts them by prayer. So the prayer will come up. If, so the Lord is faithful uh, and if you wanted to add prayer in there, you could do that in some way. But if you focus on the word prayer as your first subject, then I would say then you need to, how do you say, stand firm and hold to the traditions by prayer? I mean, what would you, how would you title it? It's more that you ask for the prayer. Yes, Exactly. Right. 
asks for prayer. Okay, Paul asks for prayer. And then in the next few verses, he, sa- he commands something. What does he command? Have you done this outline, though, for me? Can, can you follow? Can you give me your flow of thought? Oh, so you're taking me on a bunny trail. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Okay, so it really it should be here that the Lord if if you're going to follow this lo- this line of thinking here, you could say Paul asked for prayer and that would be in 1 to 3. And then starting in four to uh, four and five, maybe it would be um, what about the Lord will what? The Lord will direct your heart. Yes. And it's all in that one paragraph. Then ha- does it continue to... F- right. Does it continue on through the chapter, though? Oh, by the way, the Lord is faithful and he will do that. Right. Right. But the, and then once he makes that statement, and oh, by the way, the Lord is faithful, does that steadfastness, that word faithfulness, then continue to flow through the rest of the chapter? Yes. Okay. So that's why it becomes the higher... Uh, uh, importance of a focus for you. What you're lo- it is sometimes difficult. You, have, you really kind of have to chew on things and you have to play with it over and over. Sometimes you start with one thing, you think that's what it is, but then you see it, it kind of poops out as you move along, so to speak. That's not a nice word, is it? <laughs> but it, it just, it, huh? I don't think it poops out. I think it gets stronger. Okay. Yes. Okay, but the, but he doesn't do it by instructing you about prayer. He does it by praying for them. And in the midst of, pray, of praying for them, he's giving them exhortation, correction, and instruction. Are you seeing it? Okay. And since we know our author's primary purpose is to teach them to stand firm, not firm in prayer, but firm in what? firm in the gospel that they had been taught because the problem was they had been shaken and disturbed, right? So that's his primary goal. And that's what you need to stay focused on. You can, you're absolutely right. You can, you could pull chapter three is very heavy in prayer, which is why Kay brings it up as a major subject for us this particular week, right? And next week, the major subject subject is going to be on the unruly men. And you could turn this whole thing around too and make it be all about undisciplined men and how to handle them. But that's not his major goal because those are just two subjects in the working of the church. 
His primary focus is what is the major thing which, which holds a, a church so that it is not tossed about and, and deceived so that they end up living unruling, right? Or living in fear, disturbed and shaken. So what we're looking for is that which accomplishes the author's purpose for writing. So that's why I started there with you guys. The author's purpose, the main thing is stand firm, hold to the traditions taught. So this is all about the word of God and hanging on to that. So how do, what does he teach us about standing firm regarding this? He says in the first in the very first three things, that it's the Lord who is faithful. That's going to cover your prayer also, correct? And it's going to cover your subject of discipline as well. But he shows us by demonstration that the Lord is faithful in the first three verses. And then he follows it with basically then an instruction to them through exhortation, a statement of exhortation. And he says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we commanded. May the Lord direct your heart into the steadfastness of God and into this or into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Does he say in verse four, may the Lord direct you to prayer. May God take you to the prayer to, to your knees in prayer that you would seek him in, in this kind of relationship. Is that where he's directing them? No, he's, he's directing them through the statement in verse three into about the steadfastness of, and what is it that makes you steadfast guys? Prayer is a tool that you use in steadfastness, right? But what, if you're going to be steadfast, what must you hold fast to, according to him? The traditions taught. That's his goal. So it's easy to get, it is easy to get off on this. And I get it. And I told, but it's why K makes prayer a, a major subject for us today. But it is not the major subject in chapter three. He's still holding to his train of thought that he wants them to hold fast to the traditions taught because that's the anchor. And by the way, in PS, can you go into prayer effectively without really uh, the knowledge of God? Can you end up praying wrongly, asking God for all the wrong things and in the wrong way and with the wrong expectations? And can you be disappointed if you don't have good doctrines about how God answers prayer and what prayer he does answer? If you don't have your, your traditions that were taught to you held fast to? Yes. So you can see how the prayer then becomes the secondary, not the primary. For his purpose. Now, if we were in a book where prayer was the primary, then that would totally change our subject here. But the books, the author's purpose for writing is that they hold fast to what they've been taught. And he's saying, Jesus is faithful. And then in chapter four, in verse four and five, he says, then and he says it in prayer form, right? May your heart be in steadfastness of Christ. Any questions about that yet? Are, are, am I kind of getting you to understand the way the process is working? How do you know how to title your chapters? And it is something we haven't talked about in a long time. But you have to follow your 
your author's purpose for writing. You look at the cha- each chapter on the whole. You look for what's repeated the most, what seems to be the emphasis. The emphasis in this chapter is about two people, one who's faithful, one who's not, and everything else is following behind the subject of steadfastness. Christ is steadfast. You be steadfast, right? And then what does he say in 6 to 13? There you go. Follow our example. It sure does clump a bunch of it all under one thing. Because now within that 6 to 13, there's a lot of other subjects in there too, right? Does it remain heavy on prayer in 6 to 13? Not really. It focuses on the problems that they're having and how to address them, right? And, and how he was demonstrating things before them, even when he was in their midst. How his example of steadfastness to what was truth about the gospel, correct? Okay, so now let's go to 14 and 15. Okay, here, here we get our contrast picture. What do you do about those others? Don't associate with them, but don't treat them like an enemy. Okay, very good. So it's a brother. So what do you do with a brother? You're going to do what for them? What was a key word that we put up here? Admonish him. Now, once we study out what that word admonish means, it's going to be much more powerful to you, I think. But to admonish a brother. A brother who what? Yeah, who does not obey. Who does not obey, who does not keep, who is not steadfast in what we have taught, right? Not what, the opposite of what they're doing. He's saying he's going he's gonna to direct your heart into, I didn't finish it, did I? <laughs> Steadfastness of Christ. Okay, the Lord will direct your heart into the steadfastness of Christ. Follow our example. Admonish a brother who does not obey, meaning is not steadfast. Right? It could be. Follow our example. No, don't associate with idolists, but follow our example. Yeah. Because by itself, follow our example doesn't show the severity. I think he's trying to get a message. Could, yes. And, if, and there's, no, there's no reason why you cannot add that in on your titles. Absolutely, and it's fine. As long as that's how, you know, the whole purpose to doing what we're doing here right now and, and this discipline of doing this kind of work when you're, looking at scripture if, if for instance you have a subject comes up in your churches wherever you all are worshiping and maybe your sunday school class or your um your pastor or small group or something brings up a subject and you want to research it right i'm showing you this process is to help you because what if you need an answer about something that no one else is studying on but you need to have you need to be able to clarify is that person i'm in disagreement with teaching it correctly or am I off or are they off 
So some of these steps, every one of these steps are beneficial and can be helpful. It might be a word study that'll cinch the deal for you. It might be doing an outline of the chapter, right? But you have to start before you can outline even, you have to know what the author's purpose is for writing in that book. Because the flow of your thought has to fulfill what the author's purpose is. If his purpose is that they are going to stand firm and hold to the traditions taught, I think it follows here better than here. Asking, um, oh, I went to the wrong place, didn't I? Huh? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll just erase that the Lord is faithful. Am I confusing anyone? (laughs) I started two lists, didn't I? It's because I wanted to help. I wanted to help you guys see where it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was going to stop. Even though the words are not used, this whole thing, if you look at what things he's asked for and, and is encouraging in all these letters throughout all the chapters, is basically that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's basically it. It is a sanctification. And that the Lord be glorified. Yep, and, yep, and, yep. And That's exactly right. And he gives them all kinds of exhortations about in one day when the Lord returns, this is what is going to re, uh, be the result. You are going to have rewards. And in the meantime, as you are enduring, this is a plain indication that you're worthy of the things that God is promising. I can look at you all and I can say, you all are worthy. I am seeing you being disciplined. I can see you all being steadfast. I have seen and heard many of y'all's trials, tribulations, heartaches, um, sufferings that you all have endured. I've seen persecution against many of you in this room. And we've had conversations about it. And yet you're, you're staying firm in the things that you've been taught. You have not abandoned God. You've not run away or become angry or... or you know, shook your fist at the Lord. Instead, you are still joyfully persevering in your faith walk. And what does that prove? That you are, in fact, worthy of the kingdom of God. It proves that you have the Holy Spirit in you because you stay, stay put and stand firm. Okay, so I'm going to erase all this so that we don't get confused with my first outline. So the Lord is faithful. And in 4 and 5, the Lord will direct your heart into steadfastness of Christ. If you wanted to change that to a, a, a directive, instead, I put, may your heart be in steadfastness of Christ. You could say it that way, too. Um, follow our example, what we taught. Admonish a brother who does not, in other words, is not steadfast, is not, is not obeying, is not obeying what we taught. Boy, it's a good thing I got that last letter in there, huh? <laughs> okay. Okay, and it closes out in 16 to 18 and says what? It's really more of just a word of exhortation again at the end. What? The Lord of peace, what? Yeah. May the Lord of peace. Now, why do you think he stopped? He ends with that. Yeah. And because they are in hard times, right? 
They are in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. And so he closes it by saying, you be faithful. The Lord is faithful. You be faithful. Here's, follow my example. The, may the Lord give you peace, grant you peace. The Lord of peace grant you peace. Okay, so that gives you your flow of thought, correct? Now we're ready then to go back and take a look at just the one subject that Heinz uh, brought up again, which is uh, the prayer. That was our primary focus this week, right? So let's just go systematically through each of the chapters. Now is where we can go back, starting in chapter 1, and we can pick up all of the points about prayer that are given to us. Um, if you do, uh, we're only doing an, a small, tiny, mini study on prayer, obviously, and we're kind of mostly pull it right out of Second Thess- Thessalonians. Kay did have us go back to 1 Thessalonians, however, and then she gave us like a gazillion cross-references, right? A gazillion, right. <laughs> and especially after I got done, because then I ended up running to even more. So um, pull those things out so that you have them available. Um, did you all have trouble, as I did, I've lost my lid, uh, with trying to fit the points from your cross-references onto your chart? Boy, did I too. They didn't make sense. It wasn't fitting. I was struggling with that. So did anybody come up with a solution? How how did you handle it? You remember last week we had the problem with Joel, and the question was make a list on on, uh, out of Joel what you learn about the day of the Lord. And the problem was there were so many... Uh, minute uh, points about it that you got lost in it. You got you felt like you were drowning in information and not really focused to see it. So for for me, the Lord gave me this epiphany, sort of, and I went, ah, how about if we outline it, right? So we did that. Made much better sense, right? So it was one of the tools in the basket that you can pull from. Remember, you got a little tool basket that Precepts provides for you. You just reach in there, you pull out one of your tools, and you apply it and say, does this help me? Okay. So did you have anything that, that came a game to you this week in prayer when you got stuck with that chart and it wasn't working for you? What did you do? How did you handle it? Or did you just give up? Okay, very good. Because and so that. Very good. Uh, anyone else? Any other thought? That was good. So the rest of you were not steadfast, but one of you was. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> one of you said, I'm going to figure out how I can handle this problem and make sense of it, right? You, it really is, it is by practice and trial and error. And it depends on how much, um, I guess, how much you really want to, uh, try to figure out this work of what the inductive process is. That that's exactly right. And you know, sometimes I don't do at all what what they say. And even my own charts through the years, you know, way back in the olden days, they used to give us a chart. And I used to stand up here and read the question, and I'd put it on the board, and then I'd read the question, and then I'd put it on the board. Now I do my own thing, right? Well, now they've dropped charts for the last 15 years or so, but I still do my own charts. But thank goodness, I, I, through their teaching, I learned how to do that for myself. You have to think, where am I heading with this? We are heading 
to this end of all we want to know is the exhortations by prayer. I think what's most important for us today is to see what what Thessalonians says about it. Because all these other cross-references, like I said earlier, you're just dropping in. You don't know the context. You don't know what the full real thought of what's going on in there, what the purpose was for it. Sometimes you can read it and you think it's meaning one thing, but it's really meaning something totally different. So you're, a little bit, you're walking a little bit of a dangerous line when you're trying to do that. And if you're trying to build doctrine so that you have solid grounds to stand on, it's always best to get your most information from what you're familiar with. We know this author's purpose in this book. We understand what's going on in chapter 3. We've thoroughly uh, uh, observed it. We've found our key words. We've seen our contrast. We've now done a flow of thought for the chapter. We're in a good place to go back now and look at, and, now, and we've done that on all three chapters now. So now it's a good time to go back to the beginning in chapter 1 and just go through systematically in this particular book and say, what does this book teach us about prayer in the context of understanding their circumstance and what this author's purpose is? Okay, because that's where you're going to be on the most solid ground for getting good understanding. Um, What I did with my cross-references for me, was I started kind of looking at the statements and saying, what is this telling me? What is this information about? And I broke it down into five points, the information that I could draw out of these different verses that were given to me. I marked everything in red where it talks about peril or affliction. I marked green anywhere where it mentioned the preaching of the gospel or teaching of it. Could be even the teaching of it to believers, okay? The spiritual growth even in the word. And then in the purple, I marked anything that, that referenced sanctification, how I saw them growing in their faith, right? I marked blue for the power of God to perform it. And then I marked orange to God's glory. The result of it would be God's glory. So you did it with just two things. I did it by just going through and showing myself by color coding what were the points they were making. I'm seeing here they're talking about the power of God. Then when I was done, I was able to kind of look back and go, wow, this is pretty impressive. Some of these sections are really heavy on the affliction and persecution. Others are really heavy on uh, sanctification. Some of them are really heavy on um, the power of God. And so you can see then just by doing that, that, that each of them have their own purpose. Each reference to prayer has some kind of a strong emphasis. Absolutely. In the end, that's the goal, right? There you go. So, okay, so just let me, let me, so purpose for prayer. We're going to put over here what the prayers are, but we're going to say on here, what are some purposes for, for prayer? It's to do, to do what? What are some purposes for prayer? And, and they, there's no wrong answer on this because this is just you thinking about it. Oh, all right. Oh, wow. You would start with the good one. That one is the probably right there 
Glenn Bingo. That is exactly why this whole book is about standing firm in the traditions that are taught. You cannot do that. You cannot align yourself in prayer with God if you don't know what the traditions taught are. It's very easy for you to pray the wrong way for someone if you don't know what God says on a particular subject, you know, like on a, on a, on a moral value or on an ethical value or on a doctrinal basis. You don't know how to pray. One of the most valuable things to me um, has been when I came to a place in my life where I was able to assess, I think, accurately the spiritual place each of my family members are at. And then I'm able to pray powerfully for them. If, for instance, for many years I was thinking and hoping my son was in faith. He had at one point made a claim to be so. And for some teachings in, in the world, they would say, well, if you, if you claim it, then you are, and, you know, it's done. But the problem is there's no evidence. Now he's totally rejected it. He's totally said, no, I'm not. And he doesn't believe in anything. He thinks it's all a bunch of baloney. So now I know for sure he isn't. But at some point along this journey of me looking at his life and watching him, I was able to evaluate, you know, he, I don't think he's in, in faith. Do you think it's more effective for me to be praying for a person Lord, please help them do this, or please help them do that, as opposed to, Lord, please save them. The reason they're making all these bad choices is they're not in relationship with you. Do you think it's more effective if you have a realistic assessment? So if we realistically assess, and the assessment must be based, as Glenn has said, by aligning ourselves with God's truth first and foremost, then we can have effective prayer. But if you don't know what the, what the plumb lines of truth are, if you don't know the doctrines, then you can sometimes pray in the wrong direction. Okay, to align ourselves with God. And that's why we do it. That's that, tell me that, is it Psalm? What is the Psalm where he says, until I entered into the sanctuary of God? Does somebody know that first off? 73. I think you're probably right. That sounds right. It was in my head and I didn't want to say it. Earlier I was thinking 80, but I know that was wrong. Okay. All right. So aligning ourselves with God is one of the purposes for prayer. What else? For wisdom. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So in this case, for salvation. Okay, for sanctification. We tend to pray for uh, somebody's, a loved one's physical or material well-being. And and the best prayer is for their spiritual. Absolutely. Absolutely. But very interestingly, did we not see Paul in some places actually ask God to allow him to go back and be with certain people? So there was some of that in there to still. It's not like it wasn't allowed. That, but, yeah, you want to fo- focus first and foremost on salvation and or sanctification. That's where you have to determine, are they saved or are they not saved? So you're praying correctly for that person, right, in your mind. Now, if you don't know, then you simply pray the, the, on, the higher, on the higher ground, a bigger picture for them. All right? All right? Protection. Purpose for prayer is for protection. And I'm going to, um, 
I want to broaden that a little bit, meaning where does our protection come from? From the Lord himself. And so um, if we're praying for protection, what we're doing then in prayer time is going to the Lord and doing what positionally with ourselves? Okay, the, okay, well then, okay, for, for protection. Okay, well let me just do it this way then. Okay, that's a different subject, protection. Against the evil one. Okay? Very good. That was one of the ones I had on here for, for relationship. With God, and I'm just going to add to that a form of worship. Because one of the things we do in prayer when we do that, when we go into prayer with God and we do it in order to feel closer to Him and to know Him better, you really are in there professing, God, this is who you are. This is what I know is true about you. And in that, that becomes worship, does it not? Have you all ever heard of the ACTS acronym? What is the ACTS acronym? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication, right? Just to ask requests of the Lord, correct? Okay. All right. So with just a few of these things that we're talking about protection against the evil one or also for um, um, I'll do this one, protection in in um, affliction, I guess I'll put it that way. Hey, Katie, just, just a fun thing, but the, on the protection of the evil one, I wouldn't capitalize one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Little O, that little guy. He's such, a, he's such an evil guy. I'll give him a pitchfork. against the evil for protection against the evil one for relationship with God for protection in affliction for sanctification for salvation to find wisdom to align ourselves with God well where in there is my new car oh it isn't oh how did we do that well I've been watching it that's why oh golly okay well well can can I have like five minutes then to take us through? Would that be okay, Lois? Can I spend about five minutes or so? Let me just... Okay, so that gives us a, a purpose for prayer, some of the purposes for prayer. Let's go through and just talk about the things that we see in each of these chapters real quickly. What do we see in chapter one uh, about prayer? What did you learn in there? Lots of Thanksgiving statements, right? The, in verses 2 and 3, he starts out, he gives Thanksgiving. What does he thank God for? For their faith and their love for one another. Isn't that awesome? Okay. And there's another thankfulness in verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 5, what do we see him talking about? 
about God's, yes, that their endurance and affliction, which is seen basically, that it is this plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So he starts out with talking about this giving thanks to God for them. And he says, and he continues on, we ought to give thanks, right? And he says, therefore, and then verse five, this is a plain indication. So they're all linked together. That's why I continued the thought of being thankful and brought it all the way down into verse 5. If you didn't, that's okay. But verse 5, we see him giving God thanks for their faith and love toward one another and thanks for their endurance in afflictions, which is the evidence, the plain indication that they're worthy. Okay? So then what does he pray for them in verses 11 and 12? That they will what? Yes, that God will, in fact, count them worthy of their calling. And in the work of faith and with power. I love that one. Also, in 12, he also prays also what? Yes. Okay, that Jesus will be glorified in them and they in Jesus when he comes, right? So in chapter 1, we see already the foundation then. What would you say the major emphasis of prayer is, is about? What is his focus in prayer? About and for. That it's about God and his agenda, his plan, and their what? Their worthiness or their sanctification, right? That they are in in relationship with God in a way which is resulting in that which brings God glory, okay? Chapter 2, we see another thanksgiving in uh, 2.13. Yeah, again, back to the same thing. The first one, he says, uh, the first chapter, he was thankful for their faith and love. And now in chapter 2, he's thankful for their salvation, and how, and how does he say they received their salvation? There was two points. Okay, by sanctification, uh, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. Isn't that cool? So again, there's a fundamental piece right there that tells you how do you get saved? It's by sanctification of the Spirit and faith in the truth, period. It's grace. It's God's work, and he does it. Okay, so they did, it's not a work that you're doing anything. Um, how does he pray for them in, in 15 and 17 through 17? Yes, he wants them to stand firm and hold to those traditions taught. And then what does he also pray for them? Part in, yes, that Jesus and God, the father will give them comfort and strength. Again, that word is steadfastness, right? In every good work and word chapter three, what does he pray? Mm-hmm. Yep, that they be rescued from perverse and evil men in verse 2. And in 3, how does he exhort them in prayer? Yeah, that the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen them. What's really interesting, I think, is when you get the, the full uh, a list, a full list from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 
all exclusively on the subject of prayer, you see a consistent flow of how God um, is the source that Paul keeps directing their eyes back to. In other words, Paul mentions, follow my example, but through the whole thing, he's diverting them back. He's taking their eyes back to remembering that it's God is their source. What happens when Paul is gone if they're not taught this? Yeah, when Paul's gone, they feel like the rug gets pulled out from under their feet, right? So he doesn't teach his parishioners or his, his um, little sheep to rely on him, but rather to rely on who? The on the Lord himself. So the Lord is faithful. He is your source of strength. He will give you comfort and strength and steadfastness. And so he puts them back uh, into the focusing upon the Lord. So he says then also in verse 3, 5, he prays then that the Lord will do what? And direct their hearts, right? He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into love for God and the steadfastness of Christ. That, again, took me back to Ezekiel 36. And God will place his spirit in you and cause you to walk in his precepts and his statutes, right? So he says that God will do that for you. And verse 16, he prays what? That God will grant them peace in every circumstance. So they have an ever-present Lord who is accessible at every moment by prayer. Paul turns their eyes upon Jesus for the help for their help in times of need. I had a reference I was going to take you to in closing. I'll just give it to you. It's John 14... 27 through John 15 verse 8. So there's a whole segment in there that you might want to go and read and kind of uh, associate what is said in that particular record about prayer, um, God's granting peace. All right. I'm sorry I had to rush that last part. I guess the clock messed us up, didn't it?